Well, in these evenings, we have largely been looking at the book of Romans, and we have got to uh, Romans chapter 8, one of the, the great sort of chapters of the Bible. We're going to uh, have our Bible reading just now, the first uh, 17 verses of Romans chapter 8, and uh, Rebecca is going to come and read that for us. Romans chapter 8, verses 1 to 17. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do in that it was weakened by the sinful nature, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in sinful man in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the sinful nature but according to the spirit. Those who live according to the sinful nature have their minds set on what that nature desires. But those who live in accordance with the spirit have their minds set on what the spirit desires. The mind of sinful man is death but the mind controlled by the spirit is life and peace. The sinful mind is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those controlled by the sinful nature cannot please God. You, however, are controlled not by the sinful nature, but by the spirit. If the spirit of God lives in you, and if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, your body is dead because of sin, yet your spirit is alive because of righteousness. And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who lives in you. Therefore, brothers, we have an obligation, but it is not to the sinful nature to live according to it. For if you live according to the sinful nature, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. Because those who are led by the spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received the spirit of sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. Amen. Let's turn together in our Bibles to Romans chapter 8, those verses that we read earlier. We're particularly thinking of verse, uh, verses 12 to 17. I wonder what you would uh, say if somebody asked you, uh, so what's so great about being a Christian? Um, you maybe have just time for a couple of sentences. You're, you've pulled up at some traffic lights, your window is open, your Taylor Swift songs are playing, and uh, you take a moment and you, you, somebody leans across and, and uh, says, what's so great about being a Christian? And uh, you turn down your music and, and you, you, you answer just in, 
in the time it takes the lights to change to green? What would you say? It, it, it might be that uh, you go to Romans 5, chapter, uh, chapter 5, verse 1, that, that we began the service with, and you might say, well, do you know, the, the greatest thing is that, that I know that I have peace with God. Uh, I know that at one time, God and I were, were enemies. I didn't want anything to do with them, but, but now I have peace with them. That's just fantastic. Money can't buy that, you know. Or, or you might say at the beginning of, of this chapter something pretty similar. I, I know that there's now no condemnation for me. When, when I see God, we're, we're going to stand before Him. When I see Him, I, I know that I will not be condemned, but I'll be welcomed. That's what's so great about being a Christian. But one thing you could say is that I know that I am welcomed into God's family. It's an amazing privilege. It's what the verses in front of us tonight talk about. And it might be a particularly helpful thing to say to an inquisitive friend, because one of the things that people say about our world today is that there's an incredible sense of disconnection. We don't feel as if we belong to anything. And that promise of an eternal family that nothing can shake, well, that's a very powerful thing, isn't it? And it's not just a, a truth with a sort of an, an outward appeal, an evangelistic appeal. It, it's marvelously encouraging for Christians. It, it, it reminds us again what a great thing it is that God has done for us. John seems to feel that as he writes his first letter in First uh, John 3, 1, he says, how great is the love that the Father has lavished upon us that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are. He's just uh, full of excitement and gratitude as he thinks about what God has done in making him his child. And I hope that as we think about that tonight, if we are not Christians, it might be something that we think, that would be marvelous. I, I, I would love to know that I belong to God's family. And if we are Christians, that we would be excited and grateful that that is indeed the case for us. We have said uh, that this chapter, uh, Romans 8, is a little bit like a mountaintop in a beautiful mountain range. And the themes that it deals with are really majestic and and, and now that we've sort of reached this summit of, of chapter 8, we're slowing down a little bit to take in the view. Uh, of course, this is not a, a, a mountain that we have climbed by ourselves, as it were. We have been brought up here by God's grace and kindness. Uh, the blessings that we've been given are not the results of our own efforts. We have not made ourselves Christians. We've not uh, been able to, to somehow twist God's, God's arm and get Him into our, uh, our debt or, or get us into His good books. He has been merciful to us, and we simply have believed Him and come to Him in repentance and in, in faith. And the results are, are, are all of His grace, and, and these uh, verses and these chapters are telling us good things that come our way because God has been merciful to us, particularly uh, that we have become His children. I see Paul here talks about being sons of God. Uh, let's just say a little bit about that. Sometimes these translations uh, change a little bit depending on what version we're using, and uh, some translations change uh, sons to children. So, the, the 1984 NIV, which is the NIV that's in the pews, the Red Pew Bibles, uh, it says, uh, verse 14 of chapter 8 says, uh, because those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. If you've bought a, an NIV yourself since 2011, you can't get the 1984 NIV anymore. If you bought a, an NIV since 2011, it'll say, for those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. And the ESV 
uh, says, for all those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. And, and uh, I'm not sure that it's a good thing that uh, some translations have changed that from sons to uh, children. Uh, Paul does sometimes talk about children. He does that here in verse 16. But in the ancient world, a son had a particular legal standing and privilege. You might not agree with that, but that was a, you might not agree with the, the rightness of that, but it was a fact. And that is not reflected in the idea of just children in general. And so Paul chooses that very, very carefully. One of the things that we have to get used to is that the Bible tells us things about ourselves that are not always natural to our gender. So, for example, men need to get used to thinking of ourselves as being part of the bride of Christ. It's not a, a natural sort of um, category for us. But it has all those really important connotations of being cherished and protected and sought and so on. And it's the same then for, for women in that they need to get used to the Bible in places referring to us as sons of God because it's saying something very, very particular about our high standing. And because of that, I'm not a particular fan of, of what the new NIV has done in, in changing that any more than we would perhaps be fans if a translation changed bride to spouse, for example. But anyway, sonship, or being children of God, is not where Paul starts. It's a, it's a huge privilege, but he leads up to it in a particular way by highlighting a responsibility. The Bible just weaves our privileges and responsibilities together very, very tightly. One is never far from the other, and we need to hold them closely together. Paul does that here. And so the first thing we want to see tonight is to say, because of God's grace— we have an obligation to fight against sin. So, so this, is, this is for Christians in the sense that if we've become Christians, if we are following the Lord Jesus, God's grace has been at work in our lives. We are Christians by His kindness. And because of His grace, we have an obligation to fight against sin. So look at verse 12. So then, brothers, we are debtors, or we have an obligation. We are debtors not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh, or not to the sinful nature, to live according to the sinful nature. We saw last week that, that everybody who is a Christian that God has rescued has been given His Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit has taken up residence in our lives. But we still have what the Bible calls the flesh or the fallen, the, the sinful nature. Its, its power over us is broken. We don't have to follow its dictates, but it is still there, and, and it exercises an influence upon us, and so there is a tension where we ought to go God's way, and we sometimes find ourselves wanting to go God's way, but we actually find ourselves living according to the old us, as it were. The, the, the stench of the old us is still there, the flesh, the sinful nature. And what Paul says here is we have an obligation. We have a, a, an obligation not to follow its ways. We have an obligation to go God's way. Let's try and maybe paint an illustration that might help this. We, we imagine some paths going different directions that might try and anchor this for us. Let's imagine you, you live in a, in a particular uh, village, and uh, you, you live right in the middle of the village, and, and to the, the east of that village... Um, there are all sorts of, of difficult things that go on and, and, and all sorts of, of, of uh, bad stuff that happens there in that part of town. 
And, and, and you, before you're a Christian, you spent a lot of time there. A lot, a lot of things happened there. And, and they're all sort of clustered in, in a particular area. And, and then you become a, a, a Christian. And, and, and now you find yourselves doing a whole pile of different things, a whole lot of different values, a whole lot of different aspirations. But they're in another part of town. And, and, and so every day you get up and you walk out your door and you, and you sort of think, well, I know that my new life exists over in this side of town now. And that's where I want to be. But, but sometimes you find yourself, almost inexplicably, you find yourself back in the old part of town that you used to hang out in. And, and you get up every day and you've got this choice to make. Do, do you go back to the old part of town or, or, or do, you, do you go to where your new life is and where you want to be, but sometimes where you find it hard to stay? And where you picture it like that, you say, oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, I really know I should, I should go out of my, my door and turn to one particular direction. I should go to the, the good part of town, as it were. That's who I am now. The other direction is where I used to hang out, but, but that just brought me heartache. But I'm, I'm leaving that behind. And we know that sometimes, though we want to go this way, we, we've gone the other way. And, and Paul says, look, look, don't forget, you have an obligation. You're a debtor to go this new way, to, to not go back to that old way of living, you, you, to not live according to the flesh or to the sinful nature. You've, you've got an obligation to head to that good part of town, as it were. Now, very often that obligation is put in terms like this. It's, the Bible will say something like this to us. It will say, now, don't forget, uh, child of God, that, that, that Jesus has died for you, that he's, he's laid down his life, he's spilled his blood, and therefore, you should, you should turn away from what is wrong, and you should, should go His way. You should follow Him. Jesus said, after all, follow me. Uh, here, the obligation is slightly different. Paul has been talking about the, the Holy Spirit indwelling us. And you see that in verse 11, where he says the Spirit lives in us. And, and he says, because His Spirit lives in us, we have an obligation not to go back to that old part of town, not to go back to that old way of life. So, what do we do? Well, it's not just that we head to this new part of time. It's also that we put the old way of life to death. And we want to think about this for a moment or two, because this is not something we talk about all that often. Verse 13, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So, going God's way involves putting to death the old ways. You might imagine it like this, if we're going to keep with our, our illustration of the two parts of town, that even as we go to the old parts of town, there are those, or even as we go to the new part of town, there are those who, who phone us up from the old part of town and they say, hey, we're missing you here. And, 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 and those are, are numbers that you need to block. Those are, are old phones that you need to get rid of. There are old ways of life to be actively put to death. This is what an older generation of Christians used to call putting to death. They used to call it mortification. It's a great word, isn't it? Mortification. It's not, not a word you use often. You can see if you can weave it into a discussion this week somewhere along the line. You, you see if you can do that. That'd be quite impressive. Um, but Jesus talked about 
taking up the cross. It's the same sort of idea. He talked about cutting off those things that lead you to sin. Paul talks about crucifying the sinful nature. And all of that is, is emphasizing that there is a, a fight against sin that is needed as we follow Jesus. So whenever I was growing up, I lived in the countryside, and just about 200 yards up the road, we had a, a neighbor, a man who lived on his own, called Davy. And he had the most fantastic vegetable patch. And, and it was just up against the, the road, and so if you were walking up the road, there was a stone ditch, you know, and you could, you could just look over the, the ditch, and you could see this vegetable patch. And it wasn't huge. It was, it was maybe, uh, uh, you know, sort of the size of four or five pews here, and, 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 uh, there, but there was everything in it, and, and it was absolutely pristine. There was, there, was, there, was not a, there was not a weed in it. There were onions, and there were carrots and parsnips and all sorts of things that, that, that he had nurtured and so on. And you could, you could tell at just a glance that, that he had paid this lots of attention. The, the soil was, was well turned over. It was fertilized, didn't use chemicals or artificial fertilizers particularly. And there were all these wonderful things growing. And I would just come back and say to my mom and dad, oh, saw Davy's vegetable patch today. It's really impressive. And uh, dad would say, well, you go out and make ours look like that. He said, you know. Um, and and, and you would look over the hedge sometimes, you look over the ditch sometimes, and you'd see him there, and he'd be down on his knees. He'd, and not only would he be tending those new plants, but he'd be doing something else that was really critical. And that is he'd be, he'd be weeding out the weeds, you know, the thistles and the thorns and so on. And so the, the, the success of that vegetable patch w w was not just in how he tended those crops. It was in how he eradicated the weeds. And that's sort of the point that Paul's making here. It's not just enough to, to cultivate new practices, to, to start to read your Bible, to start to come to church, to start to pray, and so on. There needs to be, Paul's saying here, there needs to be a weeding out of our old sinful ways because we still have within us an indwelling sinful nature that is constantly sending up little shoots into our lives, and they need attention. They need to be weeded out. And, and do you know what? We are the sort of people that want to get a big bucket of Roundup and just treat them and say, well, that's it. Never need to worry about those again. It doesn't work like that. We need to be down on our knees like Davy up the road, constantly waging war on what's coming through the surface of the ground in our hearts. There was an old uh, Christian called John Owen. He wrote about this marvelously, and this is one of his quotes. He said, sin will not otherwise die, but by being gradually and constantly weakened. Spare it, and it heals its wounds and recovers its strengths. Some of you are gardeners, and you, you, you know that there are weeds like that, just the, the, the tiniest little bit of them left in the ground, and they, they sprout up again. And sins like that, we don't quite ever get all of it out. It keeps on sending up those little roots and shoots. So, so it's just, just a couple of questions then to help us think about what this means for us, and that is, how are we doing, if we're following Jesus, how are we doing 
in our fight against sin. We may suffer many defeats, but we ought to see some progress, shouldn't we? And we ought to be conscious that we are in a, a battle. Are we seeking to weed out sin as it springs up in our lives, whatever that looks like? Or are we just content to have some corners of the vegetable patch just become a tangled mess as those bits that, that maybe are closer to the road that others see, that those are the bits that we sort of, as long as they are looking okay, will not to worry too much about the rest of it. You know, you, you just can't, you can't make peace with this. John Owen says, gradually and constantly weakened. How are we doing? Well, what Paul says next might surprise us. Verse 14, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Now, what Paul seems to be saying here is that those who, who fight against sin, those who are weeding out sin in our lives, those are they, they are those, whatever way around that is, who are led by the Spirit. Now, it's not how we often hear that term used. We, we think of it maybe in connection with guidance or something that sounds a little bit more mysterious. But, but no, here, being led by the Spirit, for Paul, involves putting sins to death. It, actually, we ought not to find that so surprising. He is the Holy Spirit, after all, and so he's going to lead us into holiness. And, 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 and Paul says, well, look, those who are engaged in the fight against sin are being led by the Spirit. Now, and then he says, and those who are led by the Spirit are sons of God. Now, now let's be clear that we, we get this right. We are, we are not sons of God because we are fighting against sin. It is not our fight against sin that saves us and makes us Christians and makes us somehow acceptable to God. No, no, no. God does that by His grace. But, but putting sin to death, fighting against sin, shows us to be sons of God. It shows us to be led by the Spirit, to be there for God's children. It's, it's evidence. And, and that brings us then to our, our second point. We'll be a bit more brief with this. And that is that because of God's grace, we are adopted into God's family. Verse 15, you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Now, there's a, a cultural background to this. Uh, Paul tends to write about this adoption, being adopted into God's family, uh, to, by the places that were sort of ruled by Roman law. And in the Roman system, a, a person could adopt someone into his family, could designate him as the heir, and he would have all the rights and privileges of a natural-born child. And it might take some time for that new son to, to, to realize it, that he had the same access to the father as a natural-born child. And this is Paul's point here. Jesus is God's son by right, but we have become God's sons, if we're Christians, by adoption. And this is a, an incredible thing because we have access, we have the same access to the Father. We've become used to praying to God as Father, 
But this was not the normal way to approach God in prayer in Jesus' day. But of course, Jesus did. He, he used that term Abba, which means father. It's a, it's a family term. It's something like daddy or maybe a slightly more formal papa, something like that. But no one ever did that with God. But, but Jesus did always, except for his cry of dereliction on the cross. And perhaps it was because he prayed unlike anybody else prayed that his disciples said to him, as he taught them the Lord's Prayer, they said, Lord, teach us to pray. We've never heard anybody pray like this. Teach us to pray. And what does Jesus say? Does he say, well, no, this way of addressing God is only for me. You've got to talk to him some other way. No, no, no. He says, when you pray, say, our Father. In other words, you can have this too. Because of God's grace, you see, we've been adopted, and we can address God as adopted sons in the same way that His Son by right can. It's a remarkable privilege. Every time we pray, we should be reminded of His absolute mercy and grace shown to us. R.C. Sproul says this, this is something we should never take for granted. When we pray, our Father, we should tremble with amazement that we of all people should be called children of God. There is no second-class membership in God's family. We rightly distinguish between the natural son of God and adopted children of God, but once adoption takes place, there's no difference in status of membership in his family. He gives to all his children the full measure of the inheritance that belongs to the natural son. Isn't that amazing? You know that God didn't need to bring us into His family. He could have declared us to be right with Him and left it at that. But no, He makes us His children. We've used the picture of the judge before. You know, the judge declares us not guilty in the right with the, the, the law and with Him, and then He steps down from the bench, and what does He do? He signs the adoption papers and says, you're, you're coming home with me. Now, you imagine if that was you, if you were in the courtroom and you're expecting the judge to bring the full force of the law to bear against you, you might take some convincing that you're not dreaming and that he really had done what he said. And God does this with us. He says, verse 16, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. God, by his Spirit, assures us that we are truly his children. Now, now, quite what that verse means and how God does that has been a, a big subject of dispute and disagreement within Christians. Some, says, some people say, well, He does that by the Scriptures. We read the Scriptures, the Spirit helps us understand and apply those to our lives. Some say well, we're able to look at the very things that God describes here as marks of being God's children, putting sin to death, evidence of God's fatherly care, and we're helped to see that, yes, there's evidence here. I really am a child of God. But others have said, and I think this is probably the case, that, that there is some inner sense given by God, not all of the time, but some of the time, some inner sense given that we belong to the Lord. I find a little bit of hesitation in saying that because I know that some of us find particularly our feelings being all over the place at times. Perhaps the temperament of some of us makes this a little bit more elusive than for others. Listen to Tim Keller. All these pieces of evidence lead our spirit, our hearts, to have a measure of confidence that we are really His. But Paul says that the Spirit can come alongside us, and in addition to all that we see, He can testify. 
This seems to be referring to a direct testimony of the Spirit in our hearts. This is probably a sense of God's immediate presence and love that sometimes comes to us. We don't get this all the time or even often, and it may not be a very strong feeling, but there are times when we, as we cry out to Abba, that we find ourselves deeply assured that He really is our Abba. That's the Spirit's work, testifying for us and to us that we truly are the sons of the living God. And I think we do well sometimes to be cautious at some of the more extreme emphasis on experience that there is within the Christian life. But, but nonetheless, it is true, isn't it, that, that some Christians need to search after more of our God's like this. Some people we find have been so captivated by the love of God that they would, they would think the experience that we might avoid would be an odd thing to avoid. It seems that that's the way in the Scripture sometimes. We find, like John, enthusiasm and passion and, and joy, and surely there should be some more of that for us. Maybe we should pray for the Lord for a deeper experience a deeper knowledge of who we are before Him. And surely the Lord will answer such a prayer. Lord, testify in my heart more and more that I belong to You. And, and you see, what we see here, there is this assurance and, and, and with great blessing attached to it because He says, we are co-heirs with Christ. You see verse 17? And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ... I don't really know how to speak about this. You, you know, Jesus is the one to whom the Father says he will make the nations his inheritance. He's the one to whom the Father says he, he has put all things under his feet. And then here we're told that we share in that somehow. We're, we're his co-heirs. I don't know if you, but you, but did you ever have a friend as you were growing up? Maybe you were in primary school and your presents were just okay at Christmas. But, but you, you had a friend who got great presents. And you knew that if he got great presents or she got great presents, they would share them with you. They would say, oh, I've got this new thing. Would you come around and play with me with it? And you go, great, yeah, I'll do that. I never had a friend like that. But I dreamt of having a friend like that. And you see, Jesus is like that. What he gets, we share in. And he gets everything. And so because we are sons and family, if we're Christians, we've got so much to look forward to. We're going to see more of that as the chapter unfolds. But, but even here, we're reminded, just in a word, we don't have it all yet. And while there's much to look forward to, there's some present difficulties to go through. You see, provided we suffer with him, in order that we may be glorified with Him. So this road to blessing and to eventually sharing with Jesus all that He has, it's going to take us through some shadows in this life. We know that, don't we? Some of you get Scotty Smith's prayers. There was one this week which said, the Scriptures are very honest about life between Jesus' resurrection and return. We will have days when mystery is more real than mercy, and heartache is more tangible than hope, and pain 
is con more convincing than providence, but we will never have a Jesus absent day. And we might add that we will never have a day when if we are his children, that glorious future is not guaranteed. Because the great thing is it rests on what he has done and not on what we do. And so we can press on. So, before the rift comes off, because we have been blessed by God's grace, if we're Christians, because we've been drawn to Him, we have a, a responsibility to fight sin, yes. But because of God's grace, we're adopted into His family. Praise God.